So the sixth commandment uh, is found in Exodus 20, verse 13. It's four easy words, you shall not murder. God gave this to the Israelites as they were camped at the bottom of Mount Sinai just after they had left Egypt uh, with the intention that they were going to march into the Promised Land. But, of course, they messed up, and then they wandered in the desert for 40 years. And 40 years later, after the entire population of male uh, men had died while they wandered in the desert, uh, we came back in Deuteronomy and reviewed. And so God gave Moses, and Moses gave to the Israelites a, a second dose. And so we can turn to Exodus, uh, rather Deuteronomy 5.17 and get a much clearer idea of what this command is, is where it says, you shall not murder. So we didn't get too much more from that. It's, in fact, the shortest commandment of the ten. In the Hebrew language, it's just two words, which translated literally means murder not. Now, some of you may have King James Version or some other version where it's translated as you shall not kill. That's an imprecise translation. It's not wrong, but it's imprecise. The reason it's imprecise is that there are some kinds of killing of human lives that is not forbidden or prohibited by the Sixth Commandment. We'll come back to that in just a minute. The fact is that the Hebrew language has actually eight words for the word kill, and the, the word that's here in this Sixth Commandment is the Hebrew word rasach. Rasach means the unlawful, malicious killing of human life. And so the best translation of rasach is our English word murder. It's comprised of three primary elements. One is this, the killing of a human being. So it doesn't obviously involve deer hunting or killing animals. It's uh, unlawful, that is, it's a violation of God's law. And the third thing is that it's done with malice. Malice meaning uh, some kind of intent, uh, some, some bad intent of either jealousy or hate or rage or anger or personal gain. It's intentional. You shall not murder. Now, the basis for this commandment is that God places a high value on human life. God places a high value on human life. How high a value does he place it? Well, so high that God prescribes uh, the death penalty for those who commit murder. And we see this in uh, Leviticus 24 and verse 17, where God says, whoever takes a human life shall surely be put to death. And he says the same thing in Numbers 35 and verse 31, where he says, Moreover, you shall accept no ransom for the life of a murderer. There's no monetary fine that will, that will cover up a murderer's uh, crime. Who is guilty of death, he shall be put to death. So God places a very high value on human life. But it's important this morning for us to discover why. Why does God place such a high value on human life? And the answer is that there are two reasons. The first reason is found in Genesis 2.7. God is the giver of life. God is the giver of life. It says there that during the creation story, it says, Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. The way that God created man was different than the way he created other creatures. It was a very intimate, a very personal involvement of God directly involved in the creation of man, and even so much as that, that the idea that, that God literally breathed into the nostrils of Adam in order to give him life. And the idea of that breathing is that God gave to Adam something he did not give to any of the other animals, and it's this idea of a spirit. And so it's very unique that, that man would receive that from God uh, that he did not give to any of the animals. The second reason why God places such a high value on human life is that God created man in God's image and likeness. 
We see this in Genesis 1, uh, chapter 1, verse 26, 27. It says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. So God created men and women, all human beings, in his own image and likeness. No other creature on earth was created in God's image and likeness. Well, what does it mean to be made in God's image and likeness? Well, it means to be made like God or to resemble God. We have some, but not all, of God's attributes. For example, socially, like God, we desire relationships and fellowship. Like God, morally, we have a sense of right and wrong. Like God, mentally, we can think and reason and choose and decide and solve problems. Emotionally, like God, we experience emotions that we call human emotions, but they're actually inherited from God, including things like happiness and joy and pride. And spiritually, we have this immaterial soul or spirit, this very thing that we saw that God breathed into the nostrils of Adam. If we look around at the things that God created in the world, whether it's the stars or the moons or mountains or, or the land or the seashore or any other kind of plants or any other kind of animals, so we can see very easily that human beings are more like God than any of those things. And so Psalm 139, verse 14 says that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. The idea is that human beings are exquisite, beautiful, complex beings that God created, each of them is unique. No two persons in this room are the same. Those of you who had identical twins know that they're different. God created each person unique. It's almost as though he's a, some kind of a master craftsman who goes into his shop and only makes one unique thing out of wood. Or he's a sculptor who sculpts with clay and makes each, each thing he makes is unique, one of a kind. Or like a painter who sets up his easel and paints a landscape, and he may paint it ten times in a row, it's never exactly the same. And so each of them is unique. Now, of course, we're not the perfect image of God, right? We're not, we're not carbon copies or photocopies of God in any way. We are clearly a rough and marred, in many cases, image of God. We're imperfect, but we're created in His image nonetheless. And because of this, God commands that we protect human life. So we see this very clearly in Genesis 9, verse 6, where it says, Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And so that's the reason for that. We are made in God's image and likeness. Brian Edwards writes this about this commandment. He says, To destroy a human being is to smash the image of God. Walter Kaiser says something very similar. He says, to murder is tantamount to killing God in effigy. God made man and created him in his image and likeness. So this idea is the foundation. It's a concrete slab upon which we look at the sixth commandment. It's also the biblical basis for this thing we call the sanctity of human life. We hear that term oftentimes in the discussions around abortion, but it applies to, to, to all human life, not just unborn babies. The sanctity of human life is the idea that, that because we're made in God's image, that human life is sacred and holy 
and it's set, set apart, it's special. The sanctity of human life is, it can be defined this way. It is the conviction that all human beings of any age, from conception to natural death, including preborn children and old people on their deathbed and everyone in between, without any regard for race or color or ethnicity or intelligence or religion or language or nationality or gender or health or finances or character or behavior or physical ability or potential or class or social status, whether friends or enemies or strangers, whether they're Christians or non-Christians or atheists, all human lives have immense value. That is the biblical view that is God's view of human life. The only way to really understand the Sixth Commandment is to see it in that light. All human life has inherent dignity and immeasurable worth, and therefore, because of that, we have to have great reverence and respect for human life. We are called to be committed to the preservation and the protection and the flourishing of all human life. Stated in positive terms, the Sixth Commandment might say something like this, defend, protect, and value all human life. Therefore, we should not murder. Now, as I said earlier, not all killing of human beings is murder. In other words, not all killing of human beings is covered by the Sixth Commandment. There are at least four things that are not included. And so what, what, what is not murder? Well, killing accidentally is not murder. Killing accidentally where there's no malice, there's no intention of killing in an accident is not considered to be murder. It's unlawful. And in the Old Testament, the punishment for manslaughter, which is what we call that, is, is less than the punishment for murder because there's no intention. So it's not addressed in the Sixth Commandment. Killing as a soldier in war is also not murder. Killing associated with a war that is declared in a legal way, that is, a just war that's initiated by a lawful government, is not murder. And so those who kill people in wartime are not guilty of violating the Sixth Commandment. This is clear from our Bibles also, because as you remember in the Old Testament, God told the Israelites to go in and take the Promised Land. And they didn't, He didn't tell them to simply ask those people to move somewhere else. He said, go in and kill them. And so in a wartime situation, the Israelites followed God's command. They waged war. God was involved in developing the battle strategy. And at one point in 1 Samuel chapter 15, God told Saul to kill all of the Amalekites, every single one of them, and leave none alive. And so God never tells people to sin. And so those who followed God's command to wage war and to kill others were not violating the Sixth Commandment. So killing in war is not murder. Killing in self-defense is also not murder. Killing in self-defense, killing to protect your own life, or to protect your family when someone breaks into your home at night is not considered in the Bible to be murder. Exodus 22.2 says this. It says, if a thief is found breaking into your house and is struck so that he dies, there shall be no blood guilt for him. Also, killing as government-sponsored capital punishment is not murder. The killing of convicted criminals as punishment for crimes that they have committed is not considered either in our society, in our legal system today, nor in our Bibles to be murder, and therefore it's not covered by the Sixth Commandment. This is clear from the Old Testament where God ordered the Israelites 
to institute the death penalty for certain infractions and certain sins committed by the Israelites. The things that were included in there, and that is that, that, that justified capital punishment as, as the outcome of that included murder, included kidnapping, included worshiping false gods and several other things. And for these sins, capital murder, uh, sorry, capital punishment, that is killing the violator, was not only allowed by God, but it was commanded by God. Now, some of us will find it a little ironic that God's stated punishment for someone who took someone else's life was that we should take his life. But the rationale, I think, is relatively clear, is that murder has disregarded the sanctity of life. He has disregarded the image of God, and therefore capital punishment is not only the appropriate punishment, it's also the strongest deterrent to someone committing murder in the future. So, killing accidentally, killing in wartime, killing in self-defense, killing as a form of capital punishment are not considered to be murder, and therefore they're not included or not covered as a violation of the Sixth Commandment. However, the Sixth Commandment, you shall not murder, covers a lot more than simply first-degree murder. In other words, it covers a lot more than one drug dealer killing another drug dealer in a deal drug deal gone bad. It covers more than simply a woman hiring a hitman to kill her husband. It goes beyond that. The Sixth Commandment actually touches on a large number of cultural issues that we, that we struggle with in our society today, particularly in the U.S. And the fact of the matter is that the Sixth Commandment is a major battleground for several of those issues because the Sixth Commandment not only prohibits murder, it also prohibits abortion and suicide and euthanasia. Each of these, obviously, is a hot button in our society today. They're contentious, they're complex issues, and they're hotly debated. Now, I don't have time this morning to unpack the full extent of these issues, like abortion and suicide and euthanasia. But I also can't ignore them when we come to a command like do not murder. So what I want to do this morning is I want to unpack those a little bit and give you the sound biblical basis upon which those three things are prohibited in Scripture. And maybe in the future we'll have time to unpack it in much more detail. So I apologize for the brevity, but I recognize that we can't simply ignore them because they're an integral part of God's command not to murder. So what I'd like to do is cover those one at a time. Abortion. Abortion is the murder of an unborn human life. Biologically speaking, Human life begins at conception. Conception is the word we use for when a male sperm and a female egg come together and the egg is fertilized. That can take place within an hour of sexual intercourse or perhaps over several days. When that egg is fertilized, the product of that is what we call a zygote. It's a very small organism. It doesn't look like a baby. It doesn't look like a person because it's yet growing, but it is. It's got all the DNA and all the genetic matter necessary for life and necessary to determine not only the sex, the color of the eyes, the intelligence, and all the other traits that go along with the DNA. Nothing else is necessary in order for that zygote to become a human being, sorry, to become a child and then an adult. It's already a human being. That zygote is as much human as, as the father and the mother who created it. And the Bible is very clear that life 
human life begins at conception, not later when the child is born in a delivery ward. At conception. Samson even knew this. Samson said in Judges 16, 17, he said, I have been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb. Samson was a Nazarite, and as an adult, he looked back at the day, he didn't recognize it, but he knew, he knew it, he, back in the day when his mother was pregnant with him, God had already appointed him in the womb to be a Nazarite. David says much the same thing in Psalm 139. Psalm 139, 13 to 15, David writes this. He says, talking about himself, he's talking to God. He says, for you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. David knows that he is a person in the womb of his mother. And then he says in verse 16, he says, Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me when as yet there was none of them. David is saying that God planned out all the days of his life while David was still in the womb, while he was this unformed substance. That's what a zygote is. It's an unformed substance, but it's a human life. And David recognized that God had appointed him even while he was a zygote, laid out all the days of his life long before he was even born. Jeremiah God says the same thing about Jeremiah in Jeremiah 1.5. God consecrated Jeremiah's life as a prophet, set him apart before he was born. It says this, he says, Before I formed you, this is God speaking, Before I formed you, Jeremiah, in the womb I knew you, and before you were born I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. So the Bible considers a zygote which develops then into a fetus, is to be an unborn child, a planned human being that takes life at the moment of conception. And for Christians who believe that, who hold their lives up to the Word of God, it doesn't really matter what the Supreme Court says about it, because God's law takes precedence. Anyone who decides to abort a child any time after conception is unilaterally making a decision to terminate another human being's life. And by any definition, that is murder. And that's why God required that anyone who killed a fetus should suffer the death penalty. In Exodus 21, God was describing a, a situation where two men might get in a fight and a pregnant woman would be standing by and she might somehow get caught in the tussle and get hurt. And he says this, he says, when men strive together and hit a pregnant woman so that her children come out, that she has a miscarriage, but there's no harm. Perhaps her child came out okay. Maybe, maybe premature, but okay. He says there's no harm. The one who hit her shall surely be fined. He'll have to pay a penalty, some monetary uh, result, right? Just pay a fine. But... If there was harm to the baby, to the fetus, then you shall pay life for life. So if the baby died because she miscarried, death penalty for the one who did it. It's the same penalty as first-degree murder. Now, we've been dealing as Christians with this issue of abortion for decades. This is not a new issue. It's been a long battle between the sanctity of human life 
on the one hand and a woman's right to choose on another. God's word is very clear. Today, about one million abortions take place in the United States alone. One million. Nineteen percent of all pregnancies in the U.S. wind up as an abortion. It's a staggering statistic. But the battlefield is changing. The battlefield is changing. Because medical research continues to be done around birth. And it raises moral dilemmas for Christians that we need to be very careful not to get swept up in the science and to sit back and look at these things through the light of Scripture. For example, in vitro fertilization is a common method now among couples who can't get, married, can't get pregnant the normal way to get pregnant. You say, well, hold on, John. Why is that a moral issue? It's a moral issue because if you don't pay attention, the common method, the common procedure of in vitro fertilization is to create more zygotes than the family needs. More. Not one, maybe a dozen. And if that family is able to have those zygotes impregnated in the woman, she gives birth to four kids, and they say, well, that's enough. What do you do with the other eight zygotes? They're human life. And if they're destroyed, that's abortion. A more sinister thing is that we have this idea of designer babies. Genetic research is being done to perfect techniques whereby you take in vitro fertilization. And a scientist will take one of those fertilized eggs and withdraw a sample of the DNA. And he'll be able to coat it against brown hair, against red hair, against black hair, against blue eyes or brown eyes, against male or female, against intelligent or not so intelligent. And a couple can walk in and they can say, Hi, I want a boy, blue-eyed, red hair. And the scientist will check. He'll take those zygotes, check the DNA, and those that don't match the design, he'll throw them in the trash. That's an abortion. These are difficult issues. They're difficult issues. And we as Christians need to look at them very carefully and prayerfully and hold them up against God's laws. Turning from that unpleasant subject to one even more unpleasant, we talk about suicide. Suicide is murdering yourself. It's forbidden by the Sixth Commandment. Suicide in the United States is a big problem, and it's a growing problem. The research I did this week said that since in the last 15 years, that basically since 2002, suicide rate in the United States has been growing steadily, steadily. It's not up, down, up, down, up, down. It's steadily growth. Steady growth for the last 15 years, so that 24% higher incident of suicide today than 2002, 15 years ago. 24%. The fact is that we're all going to die. Unless Jesus comes and takes me bodily into the air, I'm going to die. And you're going to die. And God is sovereign. God is sovereign over all things. He's sovereign over the day that we are born. He's sovereign over the day that we die. And God determines that. Job 12.10 says this, In his hand, that is in God's hand, is the life of every living thing and the breath of all mankind. The very breath that I'm about to take now was determined by God. And the day I die is also determined by God. How long will I live? When will I die? Only God knows. Only God controls that. Joe 14.5 says that man's days are determined and the number of his months is with God. 
Only God knows how many days and weeks and months and years and seconds I will live. And because God is sovereign and we are not, we don't get to choose the day that we die. That's God's business. We don't get to do that. Every suicide has this very foundation, a desire to usurp God's sovereign authority and to take that authority on ourselves, and we're not allowed to do that. I believe that in every suicide that takes place, Satan, the murderer, liar that he is, let's call him what he is, he's a murderer and a liar, is right there, convincing that person that you too can take control of something that only God has control over. Ecclesiastes 8.8 says that no man has power over the day of death. God says, Jesus says that our bodies are God's temple. We don't own our bodies. Our bodies belong to God. They're the temple, and the Holy Spirit lives in that temple. In 1 Corinthians 3, 16, 17, Paul writes this to the Corinthian church. He says, don't you know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. Because we're made in the image and likeness of God, taking your own life by suicide is not not allowed. It's prohibited by the Sixth Amendment. Euthanasia. Euthanasia is just another form of murder by suicide. The word euthanasia is a Greek word which means literally good death. Good death. Funny word. Sometimes euthanasia is also called mercy killing or assisted suicide. People who promote this are trying to make it sound like a good thing, but by any name, it's murder by suicide. Euthanasia is rapidly becoming a desirable means for old people and even young people with terminal diseases to take their lives early and to avoid the prolonged agony of an extended death. Proponents of euthanasia call it death with dignity. Death with dignity. Some marketing guys came up with that. They spent a long time coming up with that word. Death with dignity. There's an organization in Washington, D.C. called Death with Dignity. You go there, they have this website, it all looks just beautiful. It's fantastic. Death with Dignity, they say, this organization says that 70%, they've done their own surveys, I guess, 70%, 70% of Americans support laws allowing terminally ill people to end their lives through physician-prescribed physician medication. 70%. Statistics like that, that make me remember Jesus' words. He says uh, in Matthew, he says, the gate is wide. It leads to destruction. Many are those who follow. Euthanasia used to be popular only in Scandinavian countries and Europe, but it's fast becoming popular in the U.S. In fact, as of today, already six U.S. states have made euthanasia legal by passing physician-assisted dying laws. Physician-assisted dying laws. And following six states, you'll guess which they are. They're always right up there. California, Colorado, District of Columbia, Oregon, Vermont, and Washington. In any of those six states, if you have a terminal illness, you can legally purchase using a prescription provided by your doctor. Take it down to Walgreens, and you can get four ounces of liquid poison that you may take on your own anytime you want to, and it will kill you somewhere between one and four hours. Death with dignity. 
makes it sound very appealing and very dignified and very easy. What's called spade a spade, death with dignity is still death. Euthanasia is still suicide. Suicide is still murder, and murder is still prohibited by the Sixth Amendment. The Sixth Amendment is a difficult one. You shall not murder. But according to the Bible, it's not restricted to just first-degree murder and suicide and abortion and euthanasia. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus expanded it and said this command also applies to anger and insults and name-calling. Anger and insults and name-calling. Why? Because those things are directed at the very person, the very human life, which is God's image. So Jesus says that's off limits too. He says this in Matthew chapter 5, verse 21-22. He says, you've heard it said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So those of you who came this morning thinking, well, I'm not a murderer. I go home hot, scot-free. Well, I hope you've never been angry. I hope you've never insulted someone. I hope you've never called them a name. James 3 says that the tongue, that is the, the thing in our mouth that we use to speak, is a, is a fire. It's a restless evil, he calls it. He calls it a deadly poison that kills anger, insults, and name-calling. And so verbal and physical abuse are obviously also caught in the Sixth Commandment. It's prohibited because it's a direct assault on human life that is made in God's image and likeness. You shall not murder. This is a difficult commandment. I realize that as I stand here, many of us in this very room have violated this commandment. Someone here may have murdered another person. I know that there are people in here who have been affected by murder. Either whose relative or good friend has been murdered or has a child or some relative that's even now serving a prison sentence because of murder. Some women in this room have had an abortion. Some men in this room have pressured women or a woman to have an abortion. Some here have attempted to commit suicide. Some here may be thinking about euthanasia. Some of us here are verbally or physically abusive. And if we think we don't get caught in that net, we know that this commandment is all around us. It's hard for us to get away from it. Somebody in our family or somebody close to us, our friends, has, has somehow been caught and pulled into that. And the effect of these kinds of sins is long-term. It lasts for years and years because these are serious sins. Murder and suicide and euthanasia and abortion are not sins that you simply confess and they're gone because the impacts ripple far and wide and they keep coming back to us year after year after year. So they're hard. And they're hard to deal with. And it's especially hard to deal with when you go to certain churches or certain ministers, people who profess to believe in God and they pull their Bibles out and they say to you, those sins are unforgivable. If you commit murder or, or 
abortion, or suicide, or euthanasia, they will tell you that that is unforgivable and that you will go to hell. And that there's no recovery from that. That is a lie. Do not believe that ever. That is a lie. People who say that have a misunderstanding of Scripture. There are two things that they don't understand. The two things they don't understand is they don't understand God's view of sin and they don't understand Jesus' payment for sin. God's view of sin isn't that, well, all sins are bad, but some sins are okay. They're not that bad. And some sins are unforgivable. No, that's not how God sees them. He says that all sins are sins. All sins deserve the death penalty. One sin will keep you out of heaven if it's not paid for. And Jesus' payment for sin occurred when he died on the cross for our sins. And so that if we believe in Jesus, his death on the cross pays the penalty and wipes the slate clean for every sin that we ever committed in the past and every sin that we ever will commit in the future. That's the gospel message. That's the good news of Jesus Christ. 1 John 2, 2 says, Jesus is the propitiation or the satisfaction or the, the atonement for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And God invites every person to believe in Jesus. And when we believe in Jesus, Jesus' death pays the penalty for all of our sins, past, present, and future. Big sins, small sins. Murder, Abortion, suicide, euthanasia, anger, insults, name-calling, everything. Scripture says that when you believe in Jesus, there is no condemnation for you. No condemnation. That's why Paul writes in Romans 8.1, he says, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You are not condemned. It doesn't mean you're sinless. It means that your sins have been paid for and they're wiped off and they're clean. Jesus says that God no longer judges you and neither should we. John 5.24, Jesus said this. He said, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment for his past death to life. The good news is that when you believe in Jesus, all your sins are paid for, big ones and little ones. And God looks upon you and He sees what? He sees a sinless human being. Not that you are sinless, but that's how He sees you. He sees you pure, white as snow, because Jesus paid the penalty for every one of your sins. And God looks forward to welcoming you into heaven, either on the day that Jesus returns and we fly up to be with him in the cloud, or the day you die on God's appointed day to be with him. That's good news. Let's pray. Lord God, these are difficult topics. It's hard to stand up and talk about them. Murder, suicide, abortion, euthanasia, physical, verbal abuse. They're difficult things. They have a ripple throughout our lives. They have a ripple throughout all those we know. And it's difficult in our society today to avoid the ripples and the waves that 
fly around us because your command has been violated. And yet we know, Lord God, that you love us. We know that we are imperfect creatures, but we're formed in your image and likeness. And so you hold human life in high value. And we should too. We know that you love us so much that you sent your only son to die that we might live, to die that all of our sins might be forgiven. Big sins, small sins, all of them, past, present, and future. That you call us to live lives that are holy and just, knowing that we are not condemned, that you look on us as sinless, white as snow. So we thank you for that. Pray that as we go here, Lord God, that we would hold up the sanctity of human life and do all we can within our power to protect and to guard human life as you've told us to do. Thank you and pray this in the powerful name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.